Welcome to Liven and Marcelo's Criminology Podcast, a podcast hosted by Marcelo Aevi from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland, and Liven Powers from Ghent University, Belgium. We aim to draw a map of the state of criminology across Europe through the words of contemporary criminologists. How is criminology defined and taught? Which are the main lines of research? Which are the main schools of thought in each country? These and many other questions are answered here by fellow researchers who share their vision on the development of criminology in their countries from its beginnings to the second decade of the 21st century. If you want to know and compare their stories, stay tuned. Today we are interviewing Helge Gunnlaugsson. Helge Gunnlaugsson is Professor of Sociology at the University of Iceland, where he teaches Sociology of Deviance. His research interests are, among others, crime perceptions, local crime trends, and the criminalization of beer. He is probably the most famous criminology professor in Iceland and often interviewed in the media. This interview was conducted on the 10th of June 2022. Okay, welcome uh, Professor Helge Gunnlaugsson, Professor of Sociology at the University of Iceland, where you teach Sociology of Deviance. Let me first say some words about the goal of our project. The goal is to retrace the history of criminology in each European country, and we want to try to create a collective memory. Because, you know, countries are so very different in terms of their history of criminological thought. Some have a long history, others don't have a long history. Some countries have a large number of schools, uh, others uh, don't. So what we try to do is basically uh, recreate and recover the collective memory of European uh, criminology. So you may think "Hmm, that's a daunting task, which it is. And that's why we try to interview uh, in large countries, for example, many uh, persons for each uh, region. Of course, regarding the situation in Iceland, we chose you, obviously, because you are uh, not only a famous Icelandic criminologist, but you're also a lot in the media. Whenever there's something about crime, uh, fear of crime, uh, people call you. So you are the face of criminology in Iceland, if I may say so, and you have a long uh, experience. So we couldn't think of anyone else to ask you uh, our questions about uh, criminology in Iceland. So basically, it's a very informal uh, conversation. But we'd like to start um, by asking you how you would define criminology as a science uh, as it exists now in Iceland. Thank you very much for for inviting me to to the program and for including Iceland. Uh, As for criminology uh, in Iceland, you know, we can say it's in its early stages as a, as a discipline or as an independent uh, discipline. We, we have scholars in Iceland who have uh, criminology in their background, you can say, and you, can, you have criminology research, but as a, as a, as a discipline in, in universities, we don't really have any criminology. It, it, it is located within uh, other fields, so to say. It's, it's, it's located within uh, sociology, for example, here at the University of Iceland, 
it's uh, it is uh, located within the, the law school as 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 a, as a subject within the law school, especially in the, in the fourth and the fifth year, yeah, as a penal processes, and then within at the University of Akureyri, there's a, there's a police academia is there, where you have uh, have criminology as a, as a subject in 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 in, in, the, in the curriculum. So we don't really have a, 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 an independent uh, academic discipline in, in, in the field of criminology here, here in Iceland. But, but we have individuals who have studied criminology abroad. And then you also have individuals who have studied, well, sociology or, or, or law or within the Polish Academy in, in, in Akureyri who have kind of have their subject in, in, in their final thesis in criminology and, and do criminological research. But we, we lack a, a discipline of criminology here in Iceland. So, so it has not yet been kind of institutionalized as a, as a subject matter within uh, universities, you know. But there are um, different courses like sociology of deviance. Are there any other courses which are uh, given which are related to criminology? Yes, there are several courses taught within our universities, criminology-oriented courses or criminology subjects. You know, it's uh, for example, I teach Introduction to Criminology in in, in the bachelor's program. Uh, I teach another course, Social Deviance, which of course is broader than criminology, broader than crime, and we we have in, in the law school we have courses. Uh, in, in, in penal processes, and I in, and in the master's program, I teach, for example, crime in Iceland uh, in a comparative perspective or something like you know, Iceland perspectives on, on crime, uh, and and we have a course also at the at the at the master's level that that, that is, uh, focuses on the criminal justice system, and 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 we have also kind of sociology of law course that 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 focuses on uh, sexual crimes. So, so we have kind of individual courses that, that students can take within uh, the academia, but we do not really offer uh, a degree in criminology. We do not offer a bachelor's degree in criminology. We do not offer a, a master's degree in, 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 in criminology. But we have at the, at the University of Iceland, we have what we call at the master's level, we offer a, a diploma certificate in criminology. And that's where you can take three courses in, in criminology, and it's it's about a year. It takes it takes a student a, a one year, one academic year, to 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 kind of complete these three courses. It, it it's only kind of officially a half time studies in for one year, but you have this diploma certificate in in, in criminology, and it is quite popular among students here in Iceland. There's quite many students who have taken this uh, diploma in, the, in, in, in recent uh, years. So there's the, the, this criminology diploma, but, 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 it's, but it's not a proper kind of a master's degree in criminology or, or a bachelor's degree in criminology, but it's a, it's a kind of short program, but very popular um, uh, among students. And it is being offered within sociology. And actually it is a very popular subject uh, among students, you know, and, and, and at this moment, we are actually preparing to start with a master's pro program in criminology starting in the fall of 2023.
So, ah. so it's, in, it's in the in the kind of it's in the early stages, and, and I also heard from a colleague of mine at the University of Akure, who is in charge of the Polish Academy there. It's been within the Polish officers they got their education through the Polish Academy at the University of Akure, starting in two, two, 2016. So it's been six years that we have Polish education within the, the university level. And he informed me just earlier this week, you know, when I was preparing for this program, that they are starting with, or they are planning to start with a bachelor's in criminology uh, next year. So that's in kind of preparatory stages. I don't know what will come out of it, but it will be kind of a part of Polish academic, uh, Polish studies or, or, or the Polish academic studies that is that you can kind of also pursue a degree as a, as a, as a bachelor in, in criminology if you're not being able to kind of actually join the, the, the police force yet, because not everyone can uh, enter the, uh, that discipline through that studies. It's very popular. Parity of criminology is, seems to be um, booming everywhere in Europe. From a historical point of view, which were the, force, uh, the first courses that were given? You see, when I was in the undergraduate program in sociology in, in the late 70s in Iceland, you know, there was one course taught in criminology, and, and that was, uh, uh, it was uh, taught by a, a, a female scholar who got a degree from Oslo, Norway, and she was teaching criminology as, a, as, a, as an optional course. She was just doing it every other year, you know, and she, she had an a, appointment elsewhere, she had a permanent position elsewhere. So, the, the, so this is, but, but when I get, uh, came here around 1990, I was hired to the university to teach criminology. You know? So that, yeah. that was kind of my subject, you know. And the reason why I got the, the appointment to begin with, because there was an interest in, in, in broadening, you know, criminology as a subject within sociology. It started already there, like in, in, in around uh, 1990, when I, when I got here, you know. Do you think there is a link with the developments in other Scandinavian countries, or or it's a it's a local trend? Actually, you know, with 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 the the, the Nordic countries, you know, there is a very uh, active and lively collaboration between scholars interested in criminals here in Iceland and the other Nordic nations, and and it takes place through the Scandinavian Council for Criminology, which is a very active institutional basis for, for criminology. Uh, and it has really kind of helped us here, here in Iceland in terms of, of, of research, because the, the council uh, hell is having kind of uh, conferences uh, every year, you know, with like 50 uh, participants, you know, that come from all of the Nordic countries. And there was always like maybe five or eight uh, participants from, from, from Iceland. They have uh, working groups, uh, contact seminars, they, they they sponsor research and grant the research and, and Icelandic scholars have received the research grant from from this council and, and this is kind of a privilege for for Nordic criminology and for Nordic criminologists you know to have an apparatus like that you know because it really gives us a, a strong foundation to to actually uh, to be active in, in research and, and to collaborate with the scholars in, in, in the other Nordic nations and uh, and this is being sponsored by the justice ministries of each of these countries, and they have a, have a, have, a, have an office with a, and, and the secretary and a, and and the chairperson. The conference is on a rotation basis, you know. It travels between the five Nordic uh, nations, and uh, and it's very active and lively, and, and supports young scholars, you know. It has a travel grants to 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 
participate in conferences, for example, the European Society of Criminology, enabling young scholars to, to participate. So it has really kind of helped us here, here in Iceland, you know, in terms of giving us uh, an identity and, 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 and strengthening, you know, our, our activities, you know. So, so I, and I think that that's going to, talking about the institutional basis of criminal, criminology here in Iceland. You, you see, it has really, you know, the institutional basis among the Nordic nations has really helped us here in Iceland, you know, giving the fact, you know, that we don't really have yet, you know, criminology as an independent discipline in, in, in the universities. And this Scandinavian Council, from what I read, is an old institution. By old, I mean it was already there in the 60s. Eh? Yeah, yes, it was actually, we, we had a, 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 a an anniversary uh, conference here in Iceland in early May of this year, you know, uh, and and uh, and where we kind of where the focus was on both kind of the history of criminology and the contribution of criminology in the Nordic nations, and 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 there were some publications in association with this uh, anniversary about the impact of criminology over the years and the change in criminology over over the years and it's been a very active apparatus you know and you can find it on uh, uh, they have a home page where you can actually access in the archives you know you can access you know uh, research seminars outputs you know contributions there uh, uh, and so you can actually go through the history through this archive on the home page you know and, th and there you can see that this is a very lively uh, organization very helpful for, for, for criminology, not only in Iceland, but, but among the Nordic nations in, in particular. You know. and, uh, it's a very interesting example, you know, and, 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 and talking about Scandinavian exceptionalism, Nordic <laughs> exceptionalism, this is exceptional for sure. You, can, you, can, you cannot really debate about it. It's, it's, it's a... Yeah, and they even financed the first victimization studies, but really early. Yes, yes, actually they did, you know, and, and they have research grants, you know, individual research grants, but also uh, large projects, you know, and I was actually included in one of the projects, a recent one, public opinion and uh, on, on punishment, comparing kind of the, the public and the and the judges, you know, if there is there a difference, you often think, you know, that the, the courts are are, are more lenient than the public, you know, and actually what we did was we kind of tested it. Is it really so, you know, by, by using kind of different types of methods, you know, like population surveys, focus groups, questionnaire. So, so that was quite an interesting project and it was an expensive project, you know, employing different methods, you know, and, uh, and the, the main sponsor behind that project was the Scandinavian Council for, for Criminology, you know, so it really helped kind of you know, for, for us to kind of advance our, 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 our research there and actually conduct this research project it was a major help for us, you know, to have the assistance and the grant and the sponsorship from, from the Scandinavian Consul. Yeah. So it's, it's also interesting for young PhD students probably to get a first way of getting into contact, presenting results. Uh... Exactly. Yeah, 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 right. Exactly. Because they, they, they have really kind of focused on young scholars to give them a platform, you know, in, in presenting their research findings from their from their PhD studies, and and also with the, with the, with, the, with the travel grants, you know, and, and individual research uh, grants, you know, so it's a different types of support that that scholars get, you know, from from this uh, institution or this organization. It's a it's a really kind of positive uh, uh, 
symbol for, for Nordic cooperation, because the Nordic nations have a, a, an extensive cooperation in, in different areas, and including them uh, criminology as, as well, you know. Would you say that there is one paradigm which is dominant, or if you, if you would compare Iceland to the other Nordic countries who participate in, in the Nordic Research Council, and you see differences and similarities? I, I, I think you know if 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 I if I try to kind of make a kind of broad generalization, uh, looking at like 20 years or something like that, you know, I, I think uh, Icelandic research community has been kind of kind of very much kind of empirically oriented. And 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 the Nordic other Nordic nations has a more maybe qualitative oriented, but this has changed in the in the in the past few years. You know, I we I can see you know that from the Nordic nations they are increasingly being more quantitative and empirical oriented in their approach, and and, and for Iceland we can see that uh, that also the the qualitative approach has has gained some foothold in the Icelandic research community, in in terms of theoretical. Approaches, I, I think it is, is it is somewhat kind of uh, mixed, you know. I, I think we, we, we see kind of uh, social process, you know, like social control theories, uh, bonding theories. So it's um, and kind of symbolic interaction like Goffman oriented orientations, you know. But you know, it's uh, I, I, I think it varies, you know, and uh, with with the kind of the theoretical what. Uh, Guides us theoretically. It's it's probably was kind of reflecting kind of the the general approach in crimin in criminology, but but in terms of uh, methodology, I see us kind of increasingly use uh, kind of mixed methods uh, approach in the sense of using both uh, qualitative and and quantitative methods, you know, interviews and and surveys, you know, and. Uh, so, 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 so it's it is kind of eclectic in, in in the sense, you know, and it depends on your study object, you know. I mean, what kind of theory, what kind of methods are applicable in each time, you know. I was thinking that, uh, yeah, the characteristics of, of Iceland, and you were telling me two thirds of the country living uh, in Reykjavik, Iran is three hundred thousand. Yeah, three hundred. Yeah, Icelanders are like three hundred seventy thousand, and then like two thirds of the population live in the capital area. You know, it's it's, it's yeah, it's like it's like one place. You know, in the sense, you know. So I, so I suppose that, for example, you mentioned social control theory. I mean, the kind of theories that um, that you can use probably change a little bit because, of course, I've been in Reykjavik and I loved it and it's a big city, but at the same time, it's like a big town uh, where people more or less know each other. I was surprised by this yeah. app that you have to know if there is a relationship between the person. So I suppose that uh, social control must be quite present there. Eh? Yes, it's a. Uh, I think family is very important to Icelanders. Interactions uh, take place a lot within the families. You know, there are family gatherings. You know, I think it's even more so than we find like in in, in Belgium or 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 Germany or, or or the UK because people live so close to each other. You know, and and you 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 tend to maintain your social ties you you get early on. You know, both with your family and 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 your friends. You know, so so it's in it. The, it's 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 informal social control right right there you know, and uh, yes it, it is true so it's a, this kind of a public culture as you can find in Europe in the sense of we have kind of open door cafes and and bars where people different 
kinds of people get together, you know, and, and, and mingle with each other, you know, and uh, and never really been nurtured in Iceland, you know, because we, of course we have long winters, you know, and it is dark in the wind in the winter and uh, and cafes and bars, you know, I mean, they came late in Iceland, you know, it's like my research in, in the 1980s, you know, maybe some of you heard about that. And I know Levin has heard about it, you know, with uh, the ban on beer, you know, the prohibition of beer. Which... Yeah, but this you could explain, eh? because not everybody knows about that. Eh? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, because it's a, you see, when you don't have any beer, when it's banned, that means bars cannot really operate. You know? and, and we didn't really have any bars in Iceland until in the 1980s and 90s. So kind of as a public space, you know, and when people get it together, it, 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 it was not much a, as, a, as a feature of public life in Iceland as it is in, for many other countries you know in addition to that iceland of course is a is a is a it's 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 the wintry temperatures and, and dark uh, hours you know and uh, and it kind of emphasizes the kind of the family orientation of, of icelandic society that the, the informal social gatherings and interactions among family members and those who you who you know well you know but you don't really mingle too much without with with uh, people you don't know i mean you you can see them I mean, like for example in the us you know people people can easily have small talk you know with people you don't know you know but that's not really a a, a feature of, of icelandic uh, society you, know? you don't really speak much to strangers you know well, i find this very Interesting because just like in the other Nordic countries, you have uh, the the boot. Yeah. So like uh, the Systembolaget in uh, in Sweden in and Wienmonopol in, in Norway, which doesn't exist in, in Denmark. But on the other hand, there was a beer ban, but you could buy brandy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean. This is a, it's, it's a very unusual. It's a very unusual legislation, you know, and 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 this was a most of my study and my master's thesis when I did my master's in 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 the U.S. in the 1980s, you know, because then there was prohibition of beer, and then of course what my my research question was, of course, you know, I mean, how come that we have a, such a strange legislation in Iceland, you know, different from all the other nations, you know. So yes, it's interesting, and uh, and you know to to look back on it, you know the reason for it is that that beer is, uh, if I try to get any kind of rationality behind it, you know, and of course I was trying to do that, you know, there must be some sense in the ban. So I was trying to seek out the sense, you know, and and the sense was that beer is an everyday kind of social reality thing, you know, it it it, it it's a beverage that you can keep in your refrigerator, it's a beverage that you kind of use in everyday life, you know. And but 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 for brandy, that's something you you don't really keep in your refrigerator. That's not an everyday reality. That's something you only do on on separate occasions. You know, when you're having a you know big party or 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 something like that. You know, so so people were kind of afraid of that if beer would be allowed, then then kind of alcohol would be a common an everyday reality for Icelanders. You know, so they were trying to kind of avoid that to 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 happen. You know. But of course, then there were a lot of kind of political uh, connections to this, you know, the, between urban and rural, and and be, between women and males, you know, and and of course, I, Iceland, as many other Nordic nations, a kind of a temperance movements have been very strong in, in Iceland. You know, it's it's a dry culture society. You know, it's not a wine culture, and never kind of really been a wine culture. So there's all kinds of explanations for why why is, but but. Now I just want to point out kind of what might have been some sense in the ban is in the sense that people were afraid of 
that fear would become an everyday reality. And then, of course, then children are more vulnerable to start using alcohol if it was uh, available there in the refrigerator or in the shelves, you know, but, but, but if it was banned, you know, of course, then you will also have maybe the strong liquor, you know, but you keep strong liquor in a, in a, in a separate shelf, you know, often with a key. And, and but when did this ban started? Because throughout the Middle Ages, usually beer was a way of not drinking water that was bad water. Of course, you have a lot of water in Iceland too, but yes. I wonder when it happened. Yeah, I mean, we had prohibition of all alcohol between 1915 and 1935. So Prohibition was lifted in 1935 through a, a popular vote among the people. You know, the majority wanted to repeal prohibition, but only by a slight ma majority. And then in 1935, so it was the prohibition was lifted, except for beer. So, so because there's always been kind of a strong opposition to alcoholic beverages. You know, so it was really difficult for many in, in the parliament to kind of to, to to show the defeat. You know totally de be defeated. So they were able to kind of maintain the ban on beer, you know, and uh, and they did that for this reason. They, they were uh, worried about that that would be too much for, for, for Iceland in the sense of, you know, that then an alcohol would become an everyday reality for Icelanders and citing, you know, research from other countries or, and, and, and observations from other countries about that beer is part of working day of many workers, you know, and the harbors, you know, and, and, and then, then, of course, the, the, the bars, you know, and et cetera, and uh, citing like reasons like that, you know. But, and, and then this ban of beer, it lasted till 1989, you know, so Iceland has recently legalized beer. But, but there must have been a very big black market with all the boats. Yeah, there was illegal illegal brewing and there was illegal market of beer. Yes, yes, there, ah. there, there, there was, you know. These are, these are interesting times, you know, and of course interesting for me as a, as a criminologist, you know, <laughs> to study origins of, of substance laws, you know, and, uh, and starting with beer, you know. And, and then, of course, I've been following the situation ever, ever since, and then uh, starting to study the, the origins of drug laws in Iceland and following the development of the drug laws in Iceland. So, so kind of my recent interest have kind of continued to be in the area of, of, uh, of substance use, you know, and then especially the legislations and, and the attitudes, public attitudes and the government attitudes toward the, these issues. You know. Drugs is also a very interesting issue because how does the drug arrive to to Iceland? I mean, the first the drugs, you know, they came to Iceland around 1970 or 1969, something like that. And, 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 and as with many other, so it's, it's relatively recent. You, of course, we have had, had alcohol for, for centuries, you know, and, uh, and tobacco has been here for a long time too, you know, but relatively recently we, we, we had, had the drugs, you know, and for Iceland, you know, it was perceived as a kind of as a foreign imposition, you know, it was like a, it was like an infection, you know, it was like a bacteria coming from abroad, you know, so there was a really firm opposition towards this uh, invasion of these uh, foreign substances, you know, entering the Iceland and uh, Icelandic mind, you know. So there was kind of a, a, a firm uh, opposition that was created early on with a specialized police force and a specialist drug court, you know, and relatively harsh sentencing. Because they was perceived as a as a as a as a major threat to the Icelandic young, you know, and therefore to the future of, of Iceland, you know. But you have a lot of consumption nowadays because uh, we discuss with colleagues or your colleagues in in Sweden, for example, and they have a problem with heroin, for example. Huh? Yeah, with 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 Iceland, you know, it's uh, you see, uh, if if you study use among 
uh, young people, like Atul said, you know, then we have the ESPAT uh, survey, you know. Yeah. The, the, a, for Iceland, you know, we, the, the conception is very low among, um, among the young, you know, and, and, and speaking about the beer prohibition, you know, it was, it was justified for many, many years of, that beer is a special threat to young people. But yeah. what we see here now with beer, of course, is that fewer younger people are using alcohol, you know, they're not using beer, you know, and uh, so, so what we have seen is that there's a reduction in the consumption of alcohol and drugs among, among the very young, you know, 15, 16 year, year olds, you know, but if we look at the at adults, you know, yeah, there, there is some consumption there, you know, but the adult consumption of drugs, we, we, we may be talking about 15, 20,000 people here in Iceland using uh, drugs, but we have maybe 180,000 using alcohol. So the volume of drug use in Iceland, you know, probably the same in, in other countries is it, it, it is not really yeah. prevalent, you know, or, or, or prominent in the in the whole population. It, it is primarily among the young, you know, from like 18, 16, 18 to maybe 25, 30 or 40. But then after that, you know, I mean, you don't really see much uh, drug use. But you're right with 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 hard drugs. We, we have a hard drug problem here in Iceland. We haven't really had heroin. But the opiate problem has been kind of severe here for, for, for us, you know, and uh, and like, for example, the death rate is, has been quite high for Iceland in the past few years, like the last five years or so, you know, we are, we are, it's not as bad as, as the US, you know, but we're somewhere between the US and, and Europe in a sense. So, yes, we've been dealing with uh, the black market of opiates, you know, in, in, in Iceland, you know, especially um, um, among the young, you know, or, or relatively young, you know, so it, that, that's, that has been a concern for, for, for all of us, you know. We've been doing some, re I've been doing some research on this, you know, with, with my students about this attic population and the social characteristics of this population, you know, and uh, so, so once again, you know, I'm, I always try to study this using research to kind of shed light on, well, in this case, the user population, you know, and, and then, of course, like with uh, legislation, you know, and, and, and the legal change, you know, and maybe see some signs for legal change, you know. So I try to kind of follow up on this uh, development here in, here in Iceland. Just one thing about this, because, you know, in Switzerland, we have these heroin prescription programs that started in the 1990s. And um, so I, I did my PhD with, uh, with that because I was in the team that was evaluating. And... So the problem of, uh, we had a, a problem in 1990, and until 1994, and then these programs started, and, uh, and there is a clear decrease. In the 1990s, we had like 400 persons dying every year uh, for overdose, and only in between, okay, only in inverted commas, 70 per homicide. Now, this um, the number of people that die by overdose decreased by uh, three, uh, three times less. And but, do you trace it to legal changes, you know? Exactly, because because we introduced this harm reduction approach. But I know that, uh, especially, I don't know which is the, the policy in, Ice, in, in Iceland, but uh, Sweden has always been very reluctant. And even the SPAD project, who, who was supported by Sweden, is about yeah the, the drug concern, which of course is real, but... Um, I don't know how are you and even Sweden, even nowadays, even with the problem they have, they are quite reluctant to anything that is not repression of use exactly. consumption. Exactly. You see, it's a you see, here's one more example of kind of the a, a research project that was sponsored by the Scandinavian Council of Criminology. This is a, a project that resulted in a book publication in December of last year, Retreat or Entrenchment, 
drug policies in the Nordic countries at a crossroads. So we have chapters there from, from, from all of the four Nordic nations. And as you point out with Sweden, there's, there's no, not much, much retreat going on there. They still kind of stick to the kind of the, the punitive approach to the drug problem. But, it, but, but my chapter here in this book is, is, is on Iceland. And I, I, I actually can detect that there, are some, there is some change taking place. There is some sort of a paradigm shift taking place in Iceland, especially in terms of how to deal with the addict population. There is more understanding among politicians and the public that we need to, to, to take a different approach to the addict population. So there is a lively uh, debate about decriminalization of use for personal, for, you know, possession of drugs for personal use. So we have proposals in, in, in the parliament, they are debated in, in, in seminars, they are debated in, 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 in society. And, and actually, you mentioned you know, that you had this harm reduction uh, in, in Switzerland. We had our first uh, kind of consumer room opened uh, this year, only like a, a, two months ago or something like that. So, 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 so we, we can see that there are kind of minor changes taking place in the, in the sense of that and, 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 and minor possession of drugs, you know, if you're caught with maybe one joint or something, it does not end up on a criminal record as it used to do before. Mm -hmm. So. Which can be harmful, you know, to be on criminal record for like three years or something like that, and you can jeopardize your your study or work uh, aspirations, yeah. you know. But but it's it's not being done for for minor possession anymore. So we can see signs of a retreat when it comes to drug use and possession of drug use for personal use. But there is no retreat in the overall prohibitory nature of our drug laws in the sense of that they still carry stiff sentencing for production, importation, and sale of drugs, you know, and we, we routinely have maybe 40, 35 or 40 percent of our inmate population serving time for drugs, you know, and we, we I do not, I did not detect any kind of change there, you know, we, there is no debate about this in society, in parliament, or in the media that we need to kind of reformulate or our, our entire drug laws in the sense of somehow providing a more humane uh, approach to drugs, you know, so, so, so I, don't, I don't have any sign of that sort, except for the drug user, you know, which is new. I mean, only 10 years ago, I mean, it's, this wasn't the, uh, uh, even uh, among, in the debate, you know, it was, I mean, it was just carry on with uh, the punitive approach, you know, but it's, it, is, it is retreating, you know, there, there is a, some sort of meltdown going on. So it, it is quite interesting, you know, and uh, but this is, like I say, a, a study project sponsored by the Scandinavian Council for Criminology on the drug legislations in Nordic nations, you know, and taking kind of, uh, yeah, it's kind of like a, a status report, you know, where do they stand at the end of two, two, 2021, you know, the Nordic nations, and we can see there's a standstill in Sweden, there's not much change going on, but in all of the other Nordic nations, Iceland included, is that there is a, a debate about uh, some sort of a shift, especially in terms of the drug user, not, I guess, with the manufacturing or producing or, or selling drugs. Perfect. Thank you very much. That's extremely interesting. Levan, you wanted to say something. Eh? I wanted to pick up on the idea of um, evaluation studies. Are there evaluation studies that prove that the policy doesn't really work because the punitive tendency, um, if you compare other research, 
we, we know that deterrence is not really the, the best way of dealing with, with crime. So that's why I was wondering if there are any evaluation studies. Um, well, we kind of just follow up on developments, you know, in the sense of not, not kind of formal studies of evaluation in, in the sense of, you know, that now we're going to just do a make a, some sort of a, a research or mapping out the consequences from A to B, you know, and and then what changed, you know, why it changed. But but just by following up on what, what, what has happened, and I like to kind of pay our attention to uh, the prohibition of beer again, in the sense of, you see, Beer was uh, legalized in 1989. So the question is, I mean, what changed? You know, the, the opponents of beer prior to 1989, they assumedly were protecting young people. They said, you know, because I'm protecting young people, and and I'm especially pr protecting working people because beer is going to be used in working places, you know, during working hours, and of course, uh, consumption of alcohol will will go up, you know. So that's what the beer opponents said. So, so, so the question is, because this is like a, a this is like a natural experiment for Icelanders. I mean, what happens with the legalization of beer? What happens with the legalization of drugs? So, what happened with the legalization of beer? Well, was it a special threat to young people? No, young people drink less today than before. Yeah, what was it? Was it drinking? I'm uh, 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 um, uh, um, uh, on the workplace. No, if anything, I would say that there is less drinking. In workplaces today than it was before, and, and and then the question is: Is there more consumption of alcohol in Iceland than in the 1980s or, or 70s? Yes, consumption of alcohol has gone up in Iceland. Yes, but is it only because of beer? No, it, of course, with the addition of beer, there is more consumption, but but there was very little wine consumption in Iceland in the 1980s. Wine consumption is, 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 has, has really skyrocketed, like, like beer, of course, in a sense. So, so there's more wine consumption, and of course there is beer consumption, but consumption of brennuine, you mentioned that, Lieven, brennuine, Icelandic <laughs> liquor, consumption of strong alcohol has gone down. So actually what, what happened with, with, with the lifting prohibition of beer, that it kind of changed the, the drinking pattern and the culture of alcohol, towards more weaker substances away from stronger substances. And the question, of course, is there a lesson for us in terms of the of the of the of the, the drug problem? And also what changed with 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 when the beer was lifted, the beer ban was lifted was that we suddenly had a lot of bars. There were no bars in Iceland before. But now there's lots and lots of bars and cafes with, with serving beer and, and and wine, you know. So, so there are more places where you can get alcohol. You know, there's more accessibility to alcohol today than, than, than before, you know. And that's, of course, part of the reason why we have more consumption of alcohol in society is that there are, you can have alcohol all over the place. But, but we still have Vimpulin, you know, the, 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 the state liquor store. But the number of state liquor stores is it's much higher than it was in the 1980s. Now we have 50 or 60 Vimpulin in Iceland, you know, but you only had 10 or 12 before the ban was lifted. So there's many reasons why we have more consumption. And then, of course, the question is, is more consumption of alcohol, is that the same as more problematic drinking? Exactly. I, I don't think so, no. I think it, even quite the opposite, you know, because it's moving towards, you know, weaker substances for, away from brandamine, you know. So it appears that the drinking behavior and the, and the pattern of drinking is, is more moderate 
than it used to be. So I, I think, you know, to evaluate, you know, the, the ban of beer and then, then the impact on society when you lifted the ban, I think that the, the experience is, is positive in, in, in the sense. But the question, of course, is can we kind of just use this example and, and, and generalize it to, to, to the drug problem, you know, and like cannabis or something like that? Perhaps. Perhaps I, I think you know uh, I think there's a lesson there you know at least for us to uh, to to consider you know uh, there are yeah. some par parallels you know in the in the prohibition of beer and the prohibition of, of, of cannabis and drugs. Mm -hmm. I was very much surprised when I um, I went to this crime prevention uh, conference in 2014 and then the results were shown of young adolescents who actually drank much less than in 2000 so then it's indeed like a social experiment it's it's yeah, yeah. It's probably yes. less than in belgium yes it, it, it kind of also tells us you know that we can use uh kind of soft approach or non-punitive measures to deal with a problem with like alcohol or, or drugs you see i mean tobacco use has really gone down but not with the help of, uh, of punitive measures Mm -hmm. with education you know and accessibility etc so now kind of tobacco is out you know it's it's and but it's socially you know and it's, it's 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 maybe through shaming or something like that not through punitive measures you know and uh so i i think that the same thing can be done with with with, with, with the drug problem you know it's you know the, the, we have other measures than just relying on the punitive the hammer you know we always have to you know well, drugs are so bad for you that we're going to punish you. You know, I mean, it's a, it's like a double punishment. You know, first using drugs, you know, it's uh, you know harmful to you, and then you also want to add to it with a, with a, some sort of a sentence or a punishment or a penalty. So it's a, I I, I think you know with humans, you know, we we have alternatives to deal with things, you know, that are maybe not one hundred percent pleasant. You know, are there any other topics where you can say that? There has been an influence by uh, Icelandic sociologists, criminologists uh, on policy relevant issues. Well, well first of all, I, I'd like to mention when when I came here, when I had finished my graduate school in the US, was that I was kind of struck by that there was not much crime data in Iceland. You know, mm -hmm. There was there was not crimes known to the police. It was not published. You know, there were no statistics from the prisons. You know, not from the courts. Uh, not from the prosecution office, you know, there was there was there was a serious lack of of crime data okay. that has changed, you know, because you, you had a question about, you know, what has changed during kind of your li lifetime or, or, or your professional career. This is really stark, you know, this is not today. I mean, criminal records, you know, have really improved, you know, and it, and it actually, of course, it's professionalization of society, but I'm really happy to kind of to, to, to say, you know, that 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 the students from, from us, you know, here at the University of Iceland, you know, they've been very helpful in actually in gaining this position of improved uh, statistics on, on, on crime, you know. So now we have like uh, for the National Crime uh, Police Administration, for the for the Reykjavik Police, you know, and then the prisons, you know, crime data is, is there. But in terms of uh, policy uh, and, and crime policies, uh, I, I'd like also to mention, you know, because Iceland is a small population, and the, and the channels between academia and politicians and society are very short. You know, government officials they routinely uh, seek for uh, experts from the university, including me and, and some of my colleagues. You know, to 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 take part in commissions or 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 or, or committees. You know, 
dealing with specific questions regarding crime. And I, I, I've taken part in, in several of these uh, commissions in the, in the past few years. A, a recent one is, for example, you know, how to deal with uh, the waiting line to our prisons, you know, because our prisons are full and there is a, a waiting line of convicts, you know, that cannot really serve their, their, their time, you know, uh, because of that there is this, uh, there's a stop in the system, you know, in the sense. So the question is, how can we deal with this, uh, this waiting line, you know, the convicts waiting for to serve their sentence, you know. So, and, and, and we came up with several non-punitive, non-custodial solutions to the problem. For example, increasing uh, uh, community service, that more, uh, that more convicts can actually serve their sentence through con community service than actually entering the prison. Uh, and, and, and several other measures that we can, uh, uh, well, like seven proposals that, that, that we, we offered, that were all non-custodial. And, 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 and the Minister of Justice, you know, he accepted it, you know, and, and he immediately started to incorporate the, the community service, that is to make okay. space for more community service, you know. So, so, so we can have an in, impact, you know, definitely. You know? And I think this is kind of characteristic of a, maybe a small society like, like Iceland, you know, and, uh, and we oftentimes are, are routinely, we are, we've been asked in the, in the media about several issues, you know, and uh, concerning crime, drug crimes or violence, or just, just, just name it, you know. Uh, and and uh, another kind of issue that I'd like to mention in the sense of impact criminologists, in quote marks, yeah, sociologists specialized in criminology, is for example, the shift that we see in, 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 in domestic violence, uh, especially in terms of abuse within families, you know, focus on that as a serious issue to take seriously, because that was an issue in the in late 20th century, it was it was not really taken seriously. It was it was actually something that 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 authorities kind of looked away from. You know, it was like as a private issue or something, and 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 then also with sexual crimes. We we had studies about like victim-oriented studies about uh, casting light on the difficult situation of victims to 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 get justice within the system. You know, with 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 new proposals to kind of somehow meet the needs of, of victims, you know, and, 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 and this is in last part, you know, this kind of debate has been informed by, by, by scholars, you know, who have specialized in, in criminology subjects or sociology of law. So, so I can see some sort of a shift towards, you know, to take more seriously kind of domestic violence, you know, and uh, criminology oriented uh, researchers have, have been, uh, played a key role, you know, in, in that process, in that shift, you know, to, to meet the needs of, of, of victims better than, than, than we used to do. You point to various examples of kind of input from the academic environment towards, you know, policy issues in, in, in Iceland, you know, and in, and in large part, maybe it has to do with a small population, you know, and there, there are small roads, short roads between academia and, and, and politicians, you know. Yeah, and probably personal relationships must be important there. Yeah. If you studied with someone that then becomes political, and the chances are high that you have shared with this person part of your studies. Eh? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I saw that also some, um, the police is also well connected with the university. You mentioned a, yeah. a, a, a police academy. Eh? Yeah. 
Yeah, the Polish Academy, you know, because it was uh, it was moved to the academic uh, level six years ago, and uh, and and it is placed in the University of of Akureyri, you know, and uh, and it's a popular subject, you know, it's, uh, quite many students who, who enroll and uh, apply for and, and and take studies there, and and but the Polish force has not been able to kind of to, to 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 hire all these people or 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 not all these people kind of meet all the criteria for to be a police officer so it's only part of them who have actually have entered the program you know and, and not been able to kind of be transferred to 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 the police force so there has been a, a vacuum for them there so that's why i think they're starting with the criminology you know it's going to criminals will be a subject within the police academy because not everyone can actually join the police forces you know so but but also when the ball starts rolling you know i mean it's just it's it's, it's a discipline kind of that is in its early stages you know and uh, and of course they know that there's a lot of interest in criminology you know and so so they start to offer criminology at least that's what they are aspiring to you know to start with that next year you know and uh, so it can easily easily kind of lie uh, uh, next to the police academy, you know, and and, and criminology by the side within the, the social sciences unit, you know. And, but there is so much kind of interest in criminology here in Iceland, and I, I can see it, of course, in the in the courses that I teach here in, at the university. Criminology is a, is a, is a subject that draws attention not only for sociology students but for 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 psychologists you know for social workers and many other disciplines you know so there's high interest in it but we have have not yet like i mentioned you know is yet uh, established this criminology as a as an independent discipline within the university it's kind of located within sociology and kind of police academy and the university of Akure and uh, in the law school within the in in the law you know but we can we can see change in the air you know in the sense of us you know starting or planning to start with criminology as a master's program next year and accurately a bachelor's program in criminology so so it, it is probably in the next few years you know it has gained more foothold you know an institutional foothold or an institutional home within the within the uh, within academia both universities are in uh, in Reykjavik no. no, no, no. The I'm University of Akureyri is in the northern part of Iceland. You know, it's uh, like uh, it's uh, 350 kilometers uh, away. You know, it's a it's a town of 20,000 uh, people, and it's a, so it's a local uh, university. And they actually offer this the Polish Academy there. You know, and uh, and so so of course most of the like I mentioned, most of the population of course live here in the in the capital area. You know, yeah. and so it's a, it's a well, they somehow they manage somehow, you know, to to offer it, you know, and uh, they have a faculty there, you know, with some faculty foreigners there, one from UK, you know, and uh, then some scholars with a sociology degree, but some specialties in in, in criminology. So it's a mm -hmm. yeah, it's a, they they have a, a an able kind of faculty there, you know, and then starting with criminology next year, they'll probably be able to hire some more people. And that will, of course, hold for us the same here in, in, at the University of Iceland with criminology at the master's level. We'll be a better position you know, to, to hire people with a criminology background. And 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 and, and we have a, a few who actually gained their PhD from, from abroad, you know, specializing in, in criminology. And we, we see we have people criminal justice, you know, some scholars from the US, you know, and, and uh, from Scandinavia. And uh, so so there is individual scholars with criminology as their kind of aspiration and their, their field. But 
we do not really have kind of criminology as a, a as an independent academic discipline within the, the universities yet, but we see it coming in the next few years. I was wondering because I thought that, for example, in Slovenia, you have the University of Maribor and they have buildings in Maribor, but they also have buildings in Ljubljana, in the capital, because I was wondering if people want to study there, it's 300, you cannot go back and forth every day, you have to move there eh? or, or teach online, I don't know. Pandemic was very kind of favorable to to these rural universities, you know, <laughs> in, in the sense of online teaching is beco becomes more accessible or more more acceptable. So so I I think many of their courses are just online, you know, but then they have maybe study periods here, you know, maybe for one or two weeks, you know, and they might even have them here in, in Reykjavik, you know, and uh, but but also in, at the University of Akure. But but I think you know. It was a it was a blessing in a disguise for them, you know, because yeah. and suddenly University of Iceland, which really did not rely much on online teaching before the pandemic, and then suddenly we are starting to do it, you know. But the University of Akure was prepared because they had already kind of uh, incorporated online teaching in, into their program, you know, and, uh, and now it's it's more acceptable than it was before the. Uh, the pandemic, you know, because we at the University of Iceland, we said now all academia has to be physically in a classroom, you know, or we have to have a, a community, physical community of people together, you know, and, uh, but now, you know, it's, we have to do both, you know, you know, have to have classes in, in the classroom, you know, but, but also offer it online, you know, so it's a, it's a different atmosphere now, you know, and it's favorable to, to a university like, like Akure. Yeah. So, but people sell their papers and their uh, thesis just online and there is no distance anymore, but of course you need some social capital and I can imagine that teaching online in, in, in Reykjavik while you are working in Akureyri, sometimes you really need to visit colleagues, so, but I think, yeah, some blending will yeah. probably be the future. Yeah, I, I, I don't like this development very much, you know, I, I, I fear, you know, that the one day we're not going to have any students in, in close presence of us, you know, I mean, I fear, you know, that, that everybody will do their studies from somewhere else, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. I don't think it's a positive development, you know, but, but I guess probably will be parallel, you know, we'll do both, you know, we'll have, on, you know, online teaching, and then also we will have classroom participation, but probably the classroom participation will change somewhat, you know. It'll be more kind of active teaching in the sense of uh, kind of promoting more activity from the students than we are used to or something, you know. So, it will, I mean, these are kind of exciting times too, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge for, for all of us in academia, you know, how to meet this uh, new you know, this new environment, you know. Yeah, I found it very difficult to activate students because there are large groups and, and in some courses there are exercises, for example, statistics, and, and it's really it's really difficult. People don't dare to ask questions because their name is visible when they ask a question in the chat room. So, but I guess we'll, yes. we'll survive. Yeah, that, that, that's the problem. You know, when I do online teaching and I don't see the faces of the students, it's all black here. And I even ask them, you know, please, you know, let me see your face at least, you know, and they, they don't do it. You know, maybe one or two or something, you know, but then all those black faces, you, know, you don't know what they're doing. They're probably not listening or they're not watching or whatever. They're just doing their own thing. You know, they're probably just browsing the Internet, <laughs> playing yeah. computer games. Yeah, I, but I wonder, I mean, you never know what uh, technology will will deliver us. Huh? So the moment they find, which I cannot imagine really, because when I was a kid, I used to watch this uh, series called UFO, UFO, huh? 
And I thought I, they were talking. I was I was born in '66, so this must be '70. Yeah, I, I saw these people talking through the um, the screens, and I thought, wow, that is the future. No, now we are doing this all the time. But I cannot imagine the next movement which could be. But if they improve a little bit more the connection, then yeah, I don't know if these classes as we know them currently. If you can a little bit materialize the person, see it in three dimensions or something like that, yeah. then I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I just see Brave New World, you know, Altus Huxley. And I don't exactly. Like it. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So we talk about this change that you saw with the ban of beer and uh, also the change, the thing, the drugs that arrived. So 30 to 40 percent of the of the Iceland, Icelandic population is people there for drugs. What other things changed from when you, the time when you when you were uh, studying criminology? Let's say uh, how crime has changed during this your during your lifespan. When I when I when I came here to Iceland, I was I was uh, I you know like I mentioned earlier, you know there was not much crime data going on, you know. So so I was kind of trying to tap into the concerns of Icelanders. You know, I mean, what are they most concerned about regarding crime? The, the crime type that Icelanders were very much concerned with in like 1990 was the drug problem. They were really much concerned about drugs you know, to kind of help the police, you know, and the help uh, in arresting, you know, drug smugglers you know, and the sale of, of drugs, you know, because this is poison, you know, poisoning our people. So there was that. So the, the drug problem was a personal problem number one, you know. But, but that has changed a little bit over the years, you know. Drugs, of course, gradually becoming part of uh, everyday reality for, 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 for some people. And uh, so, so I can see that there's some softening in terms of the seriousness of the, of the drug problem. It has changed somewhat, you know, but we have other types of crime entering the picture. It is the concern with uh, sexual crimes and, and uh, kind of domestic crimes. You know, I, I, I can see that the Today, you know, it's a uh, sexual crimes in terms of well, well, of course, incest, you know, but but and uh, sexual victimization of children, but also just sexual victimization in general. I can see that as a as a major concern in Iceland today, which it was not at the time, you know, when I entered the picture, not as much as it was. It was people kind of kind of looking away from it, you know, it, some victim blaming going on, you know, and stereotypes of of the victim, etc. But that has kind of Changed radically, you know, in the past few years, and was intensified by the Me Too uh, confessions, you know, in terms of focusing on on sexual crimes and especially on the on 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 the victim, you know, and but the offender is kind of in the in the in, in the in the shadow, you know. So there is there is there is there is a lot of kind of sympathy for for the for the victim, you know, but there is a lot of condemnation for for the offender, you know, and. Uh, and the sentiment has been kind of kind of punitive, you know, in the sense of you know that there is sentencing is, is lenient in, in sexual crimes, and but but not 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 but but maybe sentencing is not the most problem, but more uh, in terms of you know crime processing. And many of these cases are being dropped, you know, and uh, and and the reluctance of victims to report it, you know. So so this is kind of the, I'm just kind of touching up of the dialogue here, here here in Iceland, you know. So so there's kind of shifted from kind of this the, the drug problem early on, you know. Of course, there is concern with the, with the drugs, but it's a little bit different than it was in 1990, you know. 
if then it was in a kind of foreign imposition and we need to be very firm, you know, and, and then use the punitive model to kind of contain drugs, you know. But but that has kind of subdued, you know, it has diminished, you know, that kind of concern. You know, it's a little bit different with the, with the health perspective stepping in, you know, more than kind of the, 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 the punitive paradigm. But kind of these uh, domestic crimes and sexual crimes have, have entered the picture more, much more. And then we can also mention with the, with the police, you know, you know, how the police is approaching crime and, and when they have press meetings talking about crime in Iceland, they are very much concerned about, and maybe it doesn't surprise you much, you know, it's about organized crime, you know, uh, international crime cartels, and uh, that, that, that crime is becoming more complex, complicated in Iceland because no boundaries, you know, and uh, Icelandic uh, criminals or offenders, you know, they are an association with international crime cartels, you know, and uh, the topic of organized crime with no national boundaries domestic violence, you know, and then, of course, the drug crimes. I mean, I, I don't think this is very much different from your countries, you know. I, I, I'm I pretty sure you can see the same echoing in terms of, you know, that uh, sexual crimes uh, are more in the picture now than because maybe 20 or 30 years ago, you know, and, of course, uh, fueled by the, the Me Too uh, movement, you know, and, uh, and, of course, the same with maybe drug crimes, how they were perceived in the 70s in your countries, you know, is probably... Also, with that kind of, because this was new for 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 all of us, you know, and uh, so you know, we want we want to react firmly, you know, and uh, and then that is kind of somewhat diminished, you know, and and we are looking for alternatives to deal with it, and and maybe just accept it, you know, because we are not going to be able to take the bacteria away, you know, like I'm That's sure right. in Iceland in like the 70s or 80s, you know, we want we wanted to deal with it in that sense, you know, that that. That next year we're not going to have any drugs in in in, in society, and, and actually it was a political slogan in the late 1990s, "Drug-free Iceland by 2000." You know, <laughs> and I think people are more realistic now. You know that this the bacteria is here. You know, and you're not going to be able to eradicate it totally, but we need to kind of control it maybe and somehow manage it somehow. I was surprised also, but when I was in Reykjavik, I, I was there. Um, I, I work a lot with Ramvag Stories Dottir for the European source book, exactly. Exactly, and uh, I was surprised by the um, the use of social media by the police, how they communicate information through the social media, and there is like everyone um, was somehow connected there. Right? It, it is interesting, you know, because the police is trying to kind of access the public more directly, you know, that the, that the public can actually use so social media to, to, to contact the police. And then also the police can kind of show uh, maybe a, some sort of a, an insight to, a, to their work, you know, but, but, but also kind of a positive image of, of the police, you know, it's, it is, it is kind of like a community policing, you know, and then a small society, you know, you, you want to integrate everybody, you know, that the police is there for you to help you, you know, it's not there to kind of harass you. It, yeah, it's been kind of, it's interesting and, and in many ways it's been a successful, you know, but but, but, but also it has had also some, some some criticisms, you know, that because this is, you do it live on the spot, you know, and, and maybe sometimes the police is reporting something that they maybe should not have done or, or, or like, like, for example, you know, during the pandemic, the Minister of Finance, you know, he was, he was at a gathering during uh, Christmas, you know, it was, uh, and there were like 50 people together, but there was uh, only like 20 or 25 people allowed to be together, and they, but they were 50 there, 
and he was caught there and it was just through immediate kind of kind of social media police you know that they kind of reported in their diary you know and it was immediately it was out in the in the media you know and uh, so this kind of when you have this 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 online uh, connection with the people at all times you know i mean sometimes you know you, you say something that, that, that you maybe regret, you know, or something. Yeah, also I discussed with the people that were working with cybercrime, and um, that was interesting because they can cut all the incoming uh, messages from some addresses. You can simply cut them because they all come through, I mean, it's an Iceland, uh, it's, uh, it's an island, Iceland. <laughs> so the way you can control if there is a, a cyber attack is quite different from the rest of, um, of Europe. I was surprised, and they were also announcing there is a virus like this. Do not, and then when they identify the the IPs, then they can uh, cut it. You know. Yeah, that's kind of maybe one of the benefits of being in a well, an island and, and a small population. You you can control this, and this is actually what we thought with drugs. You know, we we thought kind of that being separate from everybody else and, and an island kind of far away from 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 the rest of Europe, and that we were able to kind of somehow build a wall between you know and then and, and, and eradicate Iceland with drugs. You know, but but we haven't. That's it's not possible because, I mean, there the online communications, the, the frequent traveling of everybody. You know, I mean, Iceland they travel a lot. You know, and of course we have tourists in the millions coming every year to Iceland. So Iceland is is much more also open. You know, to the international world than used to be. That that's another kind of major shift and change that I see in the last thirty years or so for, for in my lifetime. In the sense of, and Iceland used to be a little bit more closed and away from the international community back then. You know. But to, today, I mean, it's uh, Icelanders frequently travel abroad, you know, uh, which they did not do, you know, in the 1960s or 70s or, or, or even 80s, you know, but, but now they, they frequently travel abroad. And then, of course, we have influx of tourists, you know, coming here, you know, I mean, it's in, in the millions. We only had maybe 20 or 30 years, years ago, we had 50 or 100,000 people visiting Iceland, but now we have 2 million, you know. So it's, 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 a, it's a huge change for a and also for a small population like Iceland, you know, because only 370,000, but we have 2 million visitors each year. So, so, so Iceland is, is, is becoming kind of a, a much more part of the international community as it used to be. So we are not isolated island anymore, you know, as we used to be a little bit more. It's quite incredible, but I see no impact on, on property crime. For example, we, ne we did not discuss no. property crime. No. That was the largest crime category when I came here in Iceland in 19, uh, entering after graduate school in 1990, 1988, 1980. That was, you know, the, the inmate population. It was, it was like 25-35% to 35% was property crime, but it's, it's around 10-50% now. So what we have seen instead, and this is kind of close to what, what I was mentioning before here, is, is sexual violence and drug crimes, you know. Now, most of the, our inmate population is serving time for, for drugs and, and sexual crimes and, 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 and violence, you know. But but property crime is lacking behind uh, proportionately, you know, you know like thefts and uh, burglaries, yeah. fraud or, or so, something like that. So so and I guess that's uh, you see the same trend in, in in your countries, you know. I wonder because with the with the informal social control, some property crimes that are quite common um, could not have been very common in, in in Iceland. Even even worse before when you had we didn't you didn't have tourists. Most people knew each other, so I, I, but it, it used to be the main crime also, like in the rest of um, 
Yeah, I mean, they, they, yeah, exactly. There's among the young people in a little bit, you know, but 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 also some marginalized people, you know. It's uh, yeah, I mean, it it, it was you know, like stealing, you know, and, and thefts, etc. And some burglaries, but mostly maybe burglaries to to kind of enterprises, companies, factories, etc. Not maybe as much, you know, private homes, you know. And that's also probably because you know Iceland, like a small population, you know, social control of the families, etc. So. It, so it and you can you can have a better overview over you know uh, your people you know in a, in a small society like that you know you can accept you know in, informal social control to more degree than maybe in larger societies because then yeah. we live relatively close to, to to each other as well you know so it's a it's a relatively small area where everybody is at you know. Yeah, I remember when we were discussing uh, the questionnaire of the source book in the first years two particularities. For example, the Dutch were very concerned about having in the questionnaire um, bicycle theft. Huh? But mm -hmm. uh, from fin from Finland, we didn't have uh, Randa still at, at that time. There was an issue with the stealing of boats. <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> like a major issue. Right? Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if in Iceland is the same and, the, and oh. secondary houses near the coast. No, not 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 much. You know, I mean, we we have secondary houses. You know, like uh, summer houses. You know, quite common here in Iceland. Like probably like ten or fifteen thousand of them. You know, but but they they they, they tend to be get more gated as they used to be. You know, I mean, it's difficult to enter these places. You know, and uh, oh. and that's and that's maybe for insurance purposes. You know, you don't have to have maybe even one or two or three incidences of burglaries and theft from summer houses. And then suddenly everybody has has it gated. You know, and it's not that expensive. You know, anymore. I mean, to have gated uh, this, you know, enter a car. You know, I mean, you, you're not yeah. going to go through these areas anymore. You know, as it used to be. You know. 20 or 30 years, but you mean you could you could drive through all these communities, you know, the second home communities, you know, but you cannot really do it anymore. You know, it's a gated community. You see that? So ah, it's, it's ah, like pre, yeah, prevention measure, you know, but it's a, it's I, I guess also because it's 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 relatively easy, you know, it's not doesn't cost much, you know, and 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 you and probably you're more calm, you know, and you know, and people are not going to wander into your house while you're away, you know. But, but, but I I don't think. It, Burglaries and thefts were really a rampant phenomenon, but but we had incidences of it, you know, and they yeah. were publicized in the media, and you immediately start thinking, you know. And, and but it is it is a quite interesting trend. Do you think it was fear of crime or maybe a moral panic or uh, or what? It probably to some extent was a moral panic, you know. But we we've seen kind of moral panics in terms of like, of course, the, the drug crimes, you know, entering of the ecstasy pill, you know, in the in the in the late 90s, you know, there was there was a huge kind of moral panic here in Iceland. And actually, I studied this, this with my with my colleague, and we published some articles on it. And uh, yeah, I mean, in in a small population, I mean, we we tend to have kind of moral panics. We have incidences happening. There is an incidence crime, incidents downtown or or somewhere else, and we have a huge uh, discussion about this and and the, the fear factor is there and everything you know for maybe one or two weeks you know but then it suddenly dies out and the situation was just like before it started you know so so we tend to have these waves of of well moral panics when we have incidences that are really kind of uh, serious you know but still you know i think you know it's we haven't really had any kind of huge moral panics in the in the Maybe the past few years. I mean, we have so many different media going on. I mean, the, the you know, communication society is not through one channel. You know, I mean, 
the young people are on TikTok, you know, and uh, the older people on Facebook, you know, and and and, and people they, they you don't watch the same thing on TV anymore, you know. I mean, it's it's a scattered individualism society. It's also happening here in Iceland, you know. It's probably, of course, in your countries, you know, but it's even happening here in a small population, you know. It's uh, that it's becoming a little bit more individualistic, you know. Everybody has its own interests, you know, and you just pursue your own interests in your own time with your own social media, you know, and. Uh, now with the online, you know, with the pandemic, this this kind of has been galvanized, you know. This becomes intensified, you know. This kind of individualistic part of our uh, of your of our beings. It's a very interesting reflection because um, when you mentioned at the beginning the family, I was thinking, uh, yeah, the family also. In, uh, I grew up in the south, so I, I'm also habituated to these uh, family gatherings. But uh, the media, for example, the like before you would eat together and then watching tv together was a sort of ritual because there were a few channels and yes. everybody was watching the same thing now this is disappearing these shared experiences yes. are disappearing and yeah, exactly so it happened in iceland as well you know so 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 everyone has its own kind of social world you know family of maybe five or six i mean then they're, they're, i mean each of these family members is kind of ha has their own kind of social world, you know, and and less and less that everyone has in in, in common, you know. It is individualizing society in, in, in the sense, you know, because we, we so and and it, it's it's an interesting trend, you know, and what will and I think the pandemic just kind of intensified this development, you know. There are so many, of course, channels, you know, the, the computer games, you know, and there's so many different types of activities going on, you know, and uh, and it has tend to kind of somehow got maybe isolate us you know but at the same time you know maybe changing our relationships you know changing our communication and interactions you know they they, they take on a, on a different form than before yeah especially living in 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 an island then you can have friends it was very difficult to have you couldn't have had friends uh, very far away now the world is your playground but i don't know i don't know i'm not yeah. saying it's good or bad but i'm just no. It's a major change, you know, for sure. Helgi, you mentioned a couple of times when I came to Iceland and then you mentioned that you studied in the US, but maybe if you tell us just a quick minute about your history. You mean my professional history or? Yeah, that, because you, did, you didn't grow, uh, grow up in Iceland. Yeah, yeah, I I grew up in in Iceland in Reykjavik, you know. This is my hometown, you know, and. Uh, ah, okay. And then you came, uh, you went to study and you came back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. You see, I, I, I got my bachelor's degree from the University of Iceland in sociology, but then I pursued a, a graduate degree in, in the U.S., you know, University of Missouri, uh -huh. and uh, I got my master's degree there and my Ph.D. A and in my master's program, that's where I studied the, the beer prohibition, you know, from, a, from and my advisor, John F. Gallagher, you know, who has been studying uh, marijuana prohibition in the yeah. U.S., when I studied the uh, prohibition of beer, you know, I, I used, of course, the uh, Gus Field, you know, but but also uh, the literature of marijuana, you know, there is the, the prohibition of marijuana in, in, in the U.S., you know. And w when I had completed my, my master's thesis, you know, I, I entered the Ph.D. in, in criminology. That's, that, that was my specialty in the U.S., you know. And, and, and my kind of Ph.D. Pro project was crime in Iceland from a comparative perspective, you know. Where does Iceland belong in, on the criminological map, you know, so to speak, yeah. you know. 
and 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 when I started to you know collecting data, I was hit by that you know that, that there was no official grant data existing. <laughs> it was, so it made it a little bit more difficult for me you know to uh, to actually get this picture of crime in Iceland you know because there was not much data. But there, I, I got some you know, but it was it was it was excerpts you know it was uh, it was at individual members of the police or the courts they had just done for themselves in handwriting or whatever you know and. Uh, but, but then I started using other methods, you know, for example, population service about the attitudes of the public towards crime. And I studied the newspapers, how they cover uh, crime. I did interviews. I, I visited prisons, you know, interviews, interviewing inmates, you know, so it was a use whatever that was there available to me, you know, and that's how I kind of did my, uh, my PhD uh, thesis, you know, and I finished that around 1990, you know. And uh, so, so that was kind of where, where I kind of came from, you know, in the sense of my academia. And, yeah. and then I returned to, to, to Iceland and, and uh, a few years later, I, I, I got a, a, an assistant professorship here, here in Iceland, you know, a professor of, of sociology. But the reason they hired me, because there were other applicants as well, was cr criminology. I was the only one with a crim criminology as a specialty, and they were actually interested in having criminology more criminology in, in, in the curriculum, you know. So that was the edge that I had over the other candidates were kind of maybe very similar, you know, and, and, and with with fields that were already covered here in our faculty, you know. So so they thought they would they would get something new with me, you know. And they were interested in criminology and it was actually in the description. So so I immediately started uh, teaching uh, criminology and, and of course we have students in bachelor program who are specializing in in, in Criminology, like Ran Vig, you know, for example, Ran Vig, she, she was one of my early students there, you know, of course, a very strong student, you know, she did my, my her best bachelor's and her master's, you know, from the University of Iceland, you know, dealing with criminological subjects, you know, and we, we've done some research together, you know, in the past few, few, few years, you know, and quite many of my students, you know, actually are working within different kind of government agencies here, here in Iceland, you know, like, for example, the Reykjavik police. Uh, like the, the the prison bureau with the uh, prosecution, uh, the state police, you know. So so, so I, I I I I see our students. They they are in, in different uh, types of work dealing with uh, criminological uh, subjects. You know, within yeah, and you created a network. There is a network there. Yes. Yeah, I have uh, read a little bit and, and also discussed a lot with with Roberto Gatti about. Um, the development of uh, criminology in Canada, because he knew quite well Denis Sabo and he read his biography. I didn't read it, but uh, one of the things he did was create uh, an association of the former uh, students, let's say, and this allows people to gather together. And then when you have all these people working in different agencies, you could get a lot of data that would be impossible to um, to collect, do you have something like that, an association of criminologists or former students of criminology? We have actually uh, uh, an association of uh, of scholars who are interested in the subject of criminology. It, it has not been very active in the past four or five years, and it consists of uh, lawyers who have been dealing with uh, crime-related subjects and of sociologists and, and me who have been doing some criminological research. But just as we are speaking now, you know, we are in the process of of kind of activating it again to make it a, a more kind of a, a live apparatus, you know. And uh, so this association, we actually we're going to have a meeting uh, later this, this month. We're going to have a, well, not 
to to start this society, but kind of relive that society or, or awaken that society as a group, you know, and and and, and this group actually is in association with the, the criminalist foreigning in, in Scandinavia, you know, and, and there's a journal, Nordisk Tiskit for Criminal Wiedenskaps, you know, so, so, so this Iceland society will be part of that kind of network. Because this is not a new society for us. This, this was a society that was active a, a few years ago, when we were 15, 20 of us, you know, and we met maybe twice a semester or something like that, and we always had uh, uh, invited some someone, one of us or one of our members was giving a presentation on whatever he was doing at that time, you know. So we met, like I say, twice a semester, you know, for maybe four or five years. Then it kind of, for some reason or another, it kind of died out. But now we are in the process of reviving it, so to speak, you know. So it will be a, a criminology society in the sense, you know, where we can kind of meet, you know, and, and, and discuss our mutual interests, you know, and what's going on in, in, in terms of crime and crime-related subjects here in Iceland and, and our, our topics, you know. So, yes, there is a, some sort of a, a, a network of us going on, you know. But, but the important thing for all of us here in this kind of community of, of individual criminologists or interested criminology is this apparatus among the Nordic nations, you know, the Scandinavian Council of Criminology. That has always kind of helped us to, to together, you know, because there's... Yeah. They have annual research seminar meetings, you know, they have uh, contact groups, working groups, and uh, always one of us in this group, you know, tends to kind of participate in these Nordic uh, activities. So it has kind of kept us uh, alive in, in that sense, or so, to, so, so to speak, you know. So, yes, we are, you know, we, we, this, this kind of network of, of, of scholars, local scholars, uh, local criminologists is in a, in a, in a reawakening uh, process right now, you know, and uh, and we're going to have a meeting, like I say, later this this month, you know, where we can have it as a kind of email group or something where it'll be easy to access everybody. And uh, we plan to 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 meet like we used to do, like maybe once or twice a semester. That's a wonderful news because uh, these networks are the ones that continue later. Eh? But you didn't tell us the, the, the result of your PhD, which was the tradition of Iceland finally. <laughs> You see, it's a, I located this, you know, this is with my advisor, of course, Jonathan Kallar was it, it located within like Marshall Klinrad, you know, societies of little crime, for example, yeah. he was studying Switzerland. Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, so we, we tried to kind of locate Iceland within that kind of tradition, you know, it's a, a low crime society if we, if we look at the crime statistics. But I mentioned to you, we didn't really have much statistics to rely on, you know. So it was, <laughs> so it was, it was like that. But we have some data, like for example, homicide data, you know, and uh, it kind of indicated that Iceland was a low crime country, you know. And uh, we had the the, the prison population was a low prison population. There was some, some indicators of Iceland, you know, being part of the, the little crime uh, societies, you know. But uh, that as so 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 that was one uh, aspect of it. But then there was you know the interesting thing is is two dimensions of social reality. It's, it's on the one hand we have the the subjective dimension. It's it's the the mindset of people. It's the the, the ideas people have of crime in Iceland, and that's where I kind of detected there was there was a major concern for crime in Iceland. People are really worried about crime. Worried about drugs, worried about uh, about violence, you know, 
So that's kind of on, on the subjective side, we had almost like, well, maybe not a moral panic, but maybe sometimes close to being a moral panic because people are really much worried uh, about crime developments in Iceland, really much concerned what's happening to Iceland, this small population up in the north, you know, foreign crime is entering Iceland, you know. But then we had the objective dimension, you know, and the objective dimension didn't really support the the these concerns you know for for an outsider exactly of course i was writing this in the us you know <laughs> where, where objectively speaking you know this is everything is crazy you know with the, the murder rate you know and the punishment levels you know and the the, the, the crime nature of us so for galar you know many he, he for him it was a humorous you know to look at Iceland and this, this paradise society, you know, there's no crime in Iceland, of course, you know. I, so for me, it was always kind of, I had to kind of convince him, yes, there is crime in Iceland, you know. But, so, but, so, so it's interesting with the subjective and objective dimensions, you know. Subjectively, people are really very much concerned, just like Americans, you know. But objectively, I mean, Iceland was a paradise. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that you mentioned Marshall Cleaner because I have a very particular link with him. Because if you what you have of course after what you said you you know quite well cities with little crime, eh? yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. it's in page eighteen uh, there is uh, he thanks a research assistant who helped him with uh, the uh, the work the, on the ground and this is Martin Kilias he thanks Martin Kilias <laughs> that okay. uh, so when when Marshall Kinner went on his sabbatical to uh, Switzerland um, Martin was studying sociology and he helped he made the the, the the translations to German of the questions and that was that like a, the first um, kind of victimization survey and and that drove Martin to uh, criminology <laughs> so and then Martin was my mentor later so I have a direct link with uh, Marshall Cleaner All and right. also with the with the Nordic countries because Fleming Valvik Yes. Reacted to oh, that yeah. book. Yes, this yes. Book, uh, the myth. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was a major inspiration for me, you know. That I was wondering, that which is because it, there's no white image of Switzerland. Yes. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. How did it work that for you in the, in the yeah. countries? For, for me or for, for us, you know, it was more or less in the sense of, you know, if you're looking for a, a low crime candidate, maybe Iceland is better candidate than Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> was got our response you know on the other hand also we kind of align, aligned with Balvik in the sense of you know that of course there is some some some, some crime in Iceland you know and and even you know because Klinert he was addressing that you know the traffic related crime you know I mean the in the sense of also their deaths uh, traffic accidents you know that, that's a serious problem and something to deal with you know even to to more extent you know than, than the crime problem in the sense you know so it was so it's, it's, it's a question of where you put your priorities and what are you concerned about? You know, are you concerned about crime or are you concerned about well, the traffic? Well, you should be concerned about the traffic because there are so many, you know, casualties there, you know, more casualties in the traffic than crime or the homicide or whatever, you know. So so in the, in the sense of you kind of, yeah, I mean, with 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 Balvik, you know, it was pretty much pretty much there, you know, we were kind of that that Iceland could be an ideal candidate there, you know, more than than Switzerland. But 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 also the the question is, you know, that traditionally criminologists are so much concerned with the the, the explanations for crime, you know, why crime, you know, explaining crime, you know, but we should maybe explain, you know, why there is little crime, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So we'll turn it around a little bit, you know, maybe maybe a little bit similar to Hersey, I guess, social control or theory, you know, I mean, it's not always a big question about why crime, but but we should also ask, you know, why not crime, you know, 
yeah. situations where you don't have any crime and, and why do we not have crime there? You know? uh, it's funny because, of course, that was before my time. When I arrived, when I started studying criminology in 1994, that was just after that debate, but it was still there. Uh, you could uh, you could feel it because Martin talked about that. And uh, also the police forces in Switzerland were not happy with that book. Okay. <laughs> if you say there is no crime, they cannot ask for a budget, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like it's like taking your your task away from you, you know. Exactly. Yeah, Please that you're not dealing seriously. with serious things, you know. <laughs> well, this is the same, you know, when I visited Fair Islands a few years ago and on a study trip, you know, and uh, and there was this police, uh, the, the chief of the police, you know, and I, I was kind of telling him that there's not much crime in the Fair Islands. You haven't had a homicide in 30 years, you know, and uh, and this this place is, looks like a paradise, you know. I mean, there's no graffiti, there's no littering, there's, I mean, what do you do, you know, I mean, there's something like that. And he was kind of angry at me. He said, there's, I have plenty of papers here on my book, a lot of cases, you know, I have to get in here in the evenings, you know, and I have, I always come here on the weekends, you know, to do, go through all these files, you know, and all these cases, you know, so it was similar <laughs> to that, because I, I, I was like this American in Iceland, you know, it's like Iceland, I mean, there's no crime, what are you guys up to, you know, and, uh, and uh, so I was kind of in that role, you know, when I visited the Faroe Islands, you know, 50,000 people there, you know, small islands, you know, northeast of Iceland, southeast of Iceland, you know, and, and, and to me, it looked like, the, well, this is just a paradise thing, you know, I mean, there's no crime in the society, everybody's well off, you know, you don't have any crime. But of course, we know it as sociologists, that criminologists, that there's, there's always crime and there's always deviance, you know, I mean, we know it from like Amy Durkheim, you know, even among the saints, you know, there, there, there is deviance and, and, and crime. And, and, and with Iceland, you know, I mean, domestic violence, you know, it is there, you know, I mean, sexual crimes, you know, and, uh, and, and of course, there is some alcohol and drug problems here, like I mentioned, the opiate problem. And, and then, of course, with organized crime, cybercrime, etc. The, the, the concern is always there, you know, but objectively speaking, you might have some differences, you know, but, but what st was striking me in, the, in, in, in around 1990 was that this subjective dimension of Icelanders, you know, this high concern with what looked to be kind of a relatively little crime, you know, by, through the objective dimensions. You know. But we know there's always crime. I know you also visited Greenland. Yes. How would you compare Iceland to Greenland? It is very different, you know, I mean, in the sense of, you know, green, it's, it's a very harsh country, physically speaking, you know, uh, and... Uh, and in terms of uh, the transformation of the Greenland society has, has been very rapid, you know, and uh, and uh, and they they've been facing many uh, problems, you know, in kind of establishing themselves as a, as a modern nation, you know, and the relationship with the with the Danes, etc. And uh, it is in terms of alcohol and drugs, you know, it's uh, the, the problem there is much deeper. And then in terms of violence, you know, I mean, when you look at the statistical figures there, because they have they have crime data there, you know, and, and it's staggering to go through their data in the sense of sexual crimes, homicide, violence, it's very high. The inmate population is one of the highest in, in Europe, you know, I mean, talking about small societies and mm -hmm. small crimes or little crime, and that observation needs reservations, you know, in the sense of, you know, you have Greenland, a small society, but you have high crime, serious crimes. I mean, inmate population is very high. You have incest, you have sexual victimization of children, you have rapes, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's really staggering, you know, to go through the statistics. So it's a much severe social problem in, in Greenland than you, than you see in other Nordic nations. And if you compare like, like a fair island, it's a similar population, you know, 50,000 people. 
I mean, Faroe Islands is, is far away from Greenland in, in that respect. It's a very orderly okay. organized society, you know. But Greenland has been facing serious kind of social uh, problems and, and crime problems, you know. But but of course, we, things are improving, you know, in, in the sense of, but, but what, what, what was striking to me was in terms of the drug problem is that they are really, I mean, they don't really have any hard drug problem there. They only have cannabis, hussies. They are more concerned about cannabis than Icelanders are concerned about the drug problem in general. I mean, they really want to do everything to kind of control it. They are like, maybe like Icelanders in 1970 or 1980, you know, in the sense of you know, how they view cannabis. You know, they're very much concerned about cannabis. They're more concerned about the cannabis problem than the alcohol problem, because the alcohol problem is really serious there. Greenland is very uh, interesting for, 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 for many reasons, you know, and, uh, and that was another project that was sp uh, sponsored by the Scandinavian Council for Criminology, was this island project, you know, studying crime in Greenland, the Faroe Islands and Orland Islands and Iceland. So there's a, a study group that we visited all these places, you know, and we wrote a report on the situation in these these islands. You know, it was published uh, two or two or three years ago. Okay, it's in English. Yes, in English. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and your PhD too. So maybe there's still a way. It sounds interesting to compare now. You you should go back and make it now. Thirty. Yeah, after the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. We will we will apply for a grant. <laughs> <laughs> it was really nice discussing with you and um, and all these topics. You know, when you have the time to discuss, uh, I mean, this connection with um, a cleaner and uh, valving things that you can only see when you discuss a little bit without uh, looking at the at the clock all the time. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, so I hope you'll be able to 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 use this, you know, in your in, in your live in your podcast, you know, you maybe cut a little bit or something. I don't know what you, how you manage with it, you know, but hopefully this is comprehensible or understandable to the listeners. Absolutely, you know. it's extremely interesting, Helgi. Really, okay, thank you very much, you know, and uh, and I, I look forward to meeting you guys in in Malacca. Yes. Yes. I will, Let's have uh, a beer. <laughs> yes. Yes. We'll have a beer together and. Uh, and uh, I'll take your advice, you know, I, I, will, I will make my hotel reservation really fast, you know, very soon. Perfect. Okay. 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 See you soon, Helgi. Many thanks. Yeah. Eh? Bye. Have a nice weekend. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for following Liven and Marcelo's Criminology Podcast. This podcast is edited by Eduardo Coco from the University of Lausanne. Our theme song is Seagull's Night, Noche de Gaviotas, composed by Gustavo Cantero, arranged by Tato Germano, and played by Tato and Gustavo with the voices of Sasha Conte and Alejandro Turco Gujot. Your hosts are Levin Powells from Ghent University, Belgium, and Marcelo Aedi from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. Cheers and see you soon.